This is Salt and Spine. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You're tuning in today for a very special episode. We're coming to you live from the Mill Valley Public Library, where we're recording in front of this great live audience on this beautiful and brisk Friday evening. Let's say hello, Mill Valley. Amazing. And we're here today for what I know will be a really interesting and riveting conversation um, that we're calling a little bit about the modern state of California cuisine, but really about so much more, too. Um, and lending their incredible voices and expertise to this chat today are three celebrated authors you see in front of us. They're authors, they're chefs, they're activists, so I'd love to introduce them one by one now. Um, first up on the end here, she's the founder of the beloved Reams California and the author of her debut cookbook, Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. She is putting the ream in remarkable, folks. It is Reem Asil. <laughs> Welcome, Reem. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. We're also joined today by the founder of the much-beloved, um, but sadly for me and many others, no more, Brown Sugar Kitchen in Oakland, one of my favorite spots. She's the author of several cookbooks and her latest, California Soul. We have the queen of California Soul herself, Tanya Holland. Thank you. And finally, she is a native home cook who writes for publications like Edible Magazine with a focus on indigenous food systems, storytelling, and sovereignty. Her cookbook, Chiminuam, Native California Foodways for the Contemporary Kitchen, is out now. She is leading the acorn resurgence, folks. It is Sarah Calvosa Olson. Ayuki, can you hear me? Okay. Ayuki, Mill Valley, um, Nani Fishas. I live just up the hill, so I'm a local. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, welcome to all of you. So, you know, if folks have listened to Salt and Spine before, we often um, have one-on-one interviews. We have three folks here today, so we can't go quite as deep into each of your personal stories, backgrounds, but we did just want to root ourselves a little bit in who you are, what you're bringing to the conversation, and in particular, your relationship with food and how you got to this place where your name is on the front of a cookbook, right? Um, so Tanya, I thought maybe we'd start with you. As I was reading through California Soul, you talk a little bit about your childhood. You, you make a reference to this gourmet cooking club that your parents were active participants in, right? Um, do you want to kick us off by telling us a little bit about your relationship to food and cooking from that early age and how you sort of condensed version got to where you are um, in this esteemed chair today? Sure. The condensing is the hard part. Um, so I, I tell people, uh, my parents are from, my mother's from Louisiana, my dad's from Virginia, and my dad got a job with Kodak in Rochester uh, when I was two, and so they start entertaining, cooking the food that they grew up with just to create community there. And then they founded a, the Gourmet Club with five other couples, and uh, it was three black couples and three white couples. That's as diverse as the community sure. was. And it existed, but that was pretty progressive for the early 70s and existed for 20 years. Wow. And, you know, I, 
really informed my outlook on life and my exposure, um, you know, to different cuisines from around the world and regional American cuisine. I mean, they did French, they did Spanish, they did an Alsatian Rhine dinner, they did a Polynesian wow. luau, they did a Jewish Seder, um, they did a Pennsylvania Dutch, and then c- certain dishes would end up in my mother's repertoire. So we'd have chicken cacciatore and, you know, German potato salad <laughs> and matzo ball soup. And, you know, I, I thought it was normal, you know, not all at the same meal, but like, um, and then I got to college and, um, my second year, I had some roommates, one who is here, <laughs> Abby. <laughs> um, Abby lives down the street now. And, um, you know, I always say this, Abby, and it's not to call you out, but, you know, they were kind of eating macaroni and cheese in a box and tuna out of a can. And I was like, you guys don't know how to cook. And then we start hosting dinner parties. Like, is it just an intimate way to socialize? And um, I just kind of got in it, into it. I got a couple cookbooks. I started working at restaurants that year just to have some extra money. And it was just kind of like, oh, this is an interesting thing. But I graduated with a very useful degree in Russian language and literature. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, was exploring advertising before I committed to restaurants um, and then later cooking school in France. So I could stop there for now. That, that feels that good. Okay? That feels like we, we, we have a sense. So Sarah, I, you write in your book too about some of the food influences from your early childhood and you know, your, your uh, father's side was Italian, your, your grandpa Al in particular you write about his manicotti, so you have that sort of Italian influence mixing with the native influence on your mother's side and you mentioned cookbooks too as being uh, something that you looked to from an early age and took interest in. Can you tell us a little bit about how your interest in food came about and the path that, that you've been on the past few years? Yeah, so those cookbooks were like the Better Homes and Gardens type of sure. cookbooks that had the really colorful covers. And my mom had the whole set, and I used to be obsessed with her, with the one with the smorgasbord on it, the sandwich cake, because it was so colorful and exciting. And uh, as I had my own children, I really wanted them to be connected to what it means to be Karuk, and that's my tribe, that's where I'm from, up in, near the Klamath River. So, I, and I also wanted them to really see how beautiful and vibrant these foods are that we have that are natural, traditional foods. So that's really sort of like how my journey came about as a mother was making these foods for my children and trying to show them how exciting these foods could be while also acclimating their palates to the bitterness and the fishiness and the things that you know we don't necessarily have in our diets these days. So it was kind of this whole conglomeration and you know Italian food is bright and bold and it's very family oriented. So the combination of our traditional cultural life ways with this bold, you know, uh, boisterous Italian family as well. So yeah, yeah, that's great. And, and Reem, you write in your book, you use the phrase a foot in both worlds. You, you talk about, you know, uh, having uh, your parents being Palestinian and Syrian, but also that you had a real affinity for Chips Ahoy, for Kick Cereal. Like, give us a little bit about that um, part of your life. And, and if you can condense it, I know you, you've had a lot too to where you've been. Yeah, I always say like, 
when people are like, oh, your parents are not from here. Did you grow up learning the traditional recipes uh, from your Palestinian mother? And I'm like, no, I grew up on top ramen. <laughs> I was a latchkey kid. My sure. mom was a working mom. And um, so I had a very complicated relationship to food. In fact, I, my mom had these like strong feminist values. And I always thought like, I'm never going to end up in the kitchen, right? That that was the most feminist thing I do. Right. <laughs> and it's ironic that I actually did end up in the kitchen. But I think the difference was that I, I think I took this from my mom as like, I learned how to relate to food on my own terms not to cook for people when it's expected of me but to cook out of what um i really discovered later on in life was the way that my people show their hospitality which is through food yeah. lovely <laughs> well i think that's that's really helpful just to give folks a, a bit of context you can see for those of us in the room today the the beautiful books in front of us here three visually just stunning cookbooks um, but we, we titled this conversation today The State of California Cuisine, which feels very lofty, <laughs> feels like a big topic. But we're going to take a crack at it first before we dive into some of these other topics. You know, when we talk about California cuisine, I think, and Tanya, you write about this in your book specifically, we often think about Alice Waters and this farm-to-table, seasonal movement. Chez Panisse, her restaurant, is now over 50 years old, right? So I want to pose this question. Certainly we can pay homage to the Alice Waters generation of chefs and what they did for California cuisine. But how do the three of you think about that term, California cuisine, today as a concept? Is it a term we should use? Is it too much of a monolithic term that we don't even want to try to define what California cuisine is? So there's the big lofty question we're starting with today. Anybody want to take a crack at it for <laughs> I mean, as someone who put California in the title of my restaurant, sure, yeah, <laughs> I would yeah. have to say, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that there, for me, California was kind of like the promised land. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was an East Coaster trapped in a West Coaster's body. I was always destined to come out to California. I have no idea how my parents ended up in the East Coast. Um, you know, both my parents come from very, uh, I mean, my mom came from Gaza City and she grew up in Beirut, but like our, our roots are rural. Yeah. We live off the land and the way that we express foodways is through our connection to the land. So all of her family were smart and found a terrain close to the, that's similar to Mediterranean climate and moved to California. Sure. So that's where we spent all our time and it was really, I learned the food of my people and the connection to my roots through a California lens. Yeah. So in, in my book, I actually titled An Arab Finds Her Vegetable Roots oh, because it yeah. was through my discovery of these amazing vegetables that my mom never talked about. She's like, oh yeah, we used to cook with dandelion greens yeah. that I started to kind of research who my people are and how we subsisted off of foraging and farming and, um, you know, uh, our, 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 oat, like our, um, fishing and all of that sure. stuff. So I think California really opened my eyes <laughs> to this broader. And I think it did that for a lot of immigrant communities, communities trying to find their way. Yeah. Um, so, and I, we say, I mean, people are like, Oh, your, your food is like fusion. I'm like, not really like Arabs cook seasonally. We say, you know, you take your flatbread, you have the traditional ingredients like za'atar and, and sumac, but then, you add your California love, and that's paying homage to the place that we're in, 
which also feels very important that this is native land. This is a land cultivated um, by people who have lived here for generations, and we need to pay homage to that that place. Yeah. So you call it. In many ways, I'm honoring both both cultural identities. Sure. You call it Pali Kali sometimes. The Pali Kali cuisine. Yes. <laughs> Um, and, and to that vegetable point, too, you write in the book about um, discovering Deborah Madison's vegetable cookbooks. I think while you were staying with your, your aunt and uncle here in Northern California, and that as you were sort of working through her books, you felt this connection to Palestinian cuisine that you hadn't quite realized. Yeah, I mean, it's universal. Like, to, I mean, I was just, uh, I mean just the endorphins, the level of endorphins that come out of one's body when they're around vegetables, like that is yeah. real. <laughs> it is. Um, and it's something we need to pay attention to. I mean, it's like, you think about places, the first, the, you know, you think about food deserts, you think about, I mean, even in the places where my family is from, the, the first thing that happens in war, right? They attack the, yeah. the, the places that people right. like subsist off of, so... It's that important that we cultivate that land, we ensure we're regenerating, mm-hmm. um, and that we're eating food that is healthy and nourishing and connects us to our roots, sure. literally and figuratively. Exactly. Yes. Tanya, you titled your latest cookbook, California Soul. You, you write in the intro, you say, no matter where we migrated from or ended up, our food comes with us and tells our story. I am contributing, and this is my story. I have a California soul. How do you think about California cuisine in the context of your work? Yeah, so I, you know, the meaning has two sides to it. So it's California soul food, right. and then I also do feel like a California soul. Uh, my parents met out here. All of my um, maternal side of my family migrated to California. One great aunt um, stayed in Portland. Two of them moved there, and then one moved down south. Just my grandparents stayed in Louisiana. And I, you know, I'm grateful that I had that time with them at the source, and they had a garden, they had a fig tree, and, you know, I got to cook with my grandmother, which was great. Um, But I do kind of envy my cousins who got out here early and kind of had a little bit more... Um, you know, cultural freedom. Um, but since I moved out here 22 years ago, it's really informed how I cook because there is like the average person just knows so much more about seasonality, where their food comes from. Um, I've learned so much and really grown as a cook out here. Um, so I really wanted to, you know, just uh, create recipes that reflected that, as well as tell that migration story through food and the contribution that African Americans played to the food, um, played in the foodways in California as well. Um, so there's some uh, black makers that are featured in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book. Um, so that's, yeah, primarily it. But yeah, this is a big question about uh, California cuisine, but I also like, one of my first of my five cookbooks was on California cuisine, and I was a kind of a quasi-vegetarian, so I had that. I had the vegeta- vegetarian epicure and moosewood. So I really, um, you know, felt like when I, just so inspired when I got to the f- farmer's sure. markets out here. I mean, New York farmer's markets, there was a Union Square farmer's market. I was like, oh, there's apples again, you know. And <laughs> it just wasn't, it's better now, I think, yeah. but... Back in the uh, when I was first cooking in the early '90s, it wasn't that yeah, inspiring. That, that's fair, Sarah. You've been on this Sarah, journey yeah. too. 
issue of you know researching indigenous ingredients, looking into techniques. Like, what have you learned about this sort of um, California cuisine and the the long, long history of foodways here? Yeah, that it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, yeah, this is difficult to even um, answer because I mean, California to me is all of these different types of cuisine and essentially indigenous diaspora from all over and bringing their techniques and their ingredients. And like you're saying, there's people of all cultures that are fishing off the piers and they're gathering and they're going in and they're tending in their own little spaces and their own little cultural lifeways that they bring to this state and have been bringing to this state since its inception in one way or another. And, uh, you know, and then I, I cook, you know, I'm not a chef, I'm a home cook, and I gener generally work in community. And when I think about California cuisine, I think about it from a community perspective and what that means for each individual family and household and, and how they approach um, all of these available um, cultural foodways and how they can bring that into their own homes in a good way and, and start to cultivate a relationship outside of their home. And I think that my, my way of cooking is very community-based, and um, I guess that's what I see as far as California cuisine, is that it is a community-based cuisine. Like I, I think about my, my grandpa, he, they moved from the East Coast to Orange County, and the first thing that he does is plant fig trees and all of the other trees, and then, and then the people from the neighborhood come and they gather from his trees and they leave him gifts, they'll leave him cakes and figs, you know, uh, things that they've made, and it's this community uh, mentality that, the, that these different communities bring to California. So I think that, uh, I think that as we are celebrating them and learning about them and understanding them, that we are also acknowledging that historically they these are the most um, you know marginalized peoples in our community. That we use this as a cultural identity as Californians. That these are our foodways. We love tacos, but we don't necessarily uh, honor where those lifeways originated. So I think that for me, what I would like to see for the future of California cuisine is an understanding and and an honoring of that and, you know, centering uh, indigenous practices yeah. Yeah. as we go forward. That's such a great point, Sarah, on community too. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm so glad you used the phrase community too, right? It's, it, it's kind of an overused term a little bit too, right? It got very trendy for a minute. Um, but it's such a true term for what all three of your work strives to do. And as I was looking at each of your books, you know, there really is that through line of community. I study a lot of cookbooks. There's a lot of books today that are amazing that are about how to get dinner on a table in 20 minutes or how to cook for yourself or how to put together a pantry meal, which like, I have two little kids, that's what I turn to a lot of the time. But this sense of community that's so baked into your books is so clear, and I'm curious from like a publishing perspective and a, on an authorship perspective, how do you work to build a cookbook like the ones you've done that are not just a tool or a resource for someone to make a dish, but feel like a place that someone can go to to achieve a goal of building community? with food at the center of it. You know, I like to tell this a story around, you know, what is on the plate. And 
for this book too, every recipe that I created as I was developing it, I said, I had to answer the question, what about it is California? What about it is soul? Because sure. that's, I feel like that's what's, you know, the nexus and what I'm integrating out here. Um, and just like, I mean, you just kind of become, you said accidental restaurateur. <laughs> I was an intentional restaurateur, but I was an accidental activist for sure, an ac- accident, accidental community builder, even though it is kind of in my DNA. Um, but I think, you know, just, you know, for instance, when I, before I opened Brown Church Kitchen, my intention was to open this Afro-French bistro called Patois. And I did not get the real estate location that I wanted, which I felt like was going to have more of a sophisticated clientele. Um, not that there weren't sophisticated people in West Oakland, but West Oakland was really kind of going through a big transition. And I had to pivot and change the name and concept to match the community. So I started thinking of a name that I thought was user-friendly, and I came up with Brown Sugar Kitchen. And I never, I'd not go to cooking school in France to cook breakfast. Like, that was not an aspiration. (laughs) But I knew that this was not a community where people were going to, you know, come for dinner because it was very desolate at night. And at that time, like, I had to go to city hall meetings and ask for lighting and things like that. Uh, the sense of community, I think, does really nicely connect to your your term accidental activist, too. You, you, but you are so much. And all three of you position yourself, you know, so clearly as activists, as organizers. I mean, Reem, you were actually an organizer for many, many years before you became a restaurateur. Um, change makers. I'm curious if you have advice for this next, as we're talking about the state of California cuisine. There's another generation behind you too, right? Of, of chefs, of cookbook authors, of restaurateurs, of food writers. What's the advice to them on how to continue to work towards that sense of community, that sense of creating uh, a better place, um, one where everybody can thrive, putting that activism piece into your work? lessons for the next generation as people who've had to figure out how to do it in, you know, day by day? I guess it dovetails with your first question around kind of what was that process for like building community through the cookbook. Actually, I was really selfish about this cookbook. I I think maybe I drove the publisher a little crazy, but I had an amazing editor and she was like, yes, yes. But I was like, I wanted to write a memoir, but apparently I wasn't important enough (laughs) just yet. So I was like, let me sneak a memoir in my cookbook, right? Because if they know about me, they're really going to want to cook my food, right? And then I was like, okay, I wanted to put the like sweets right in the middle of the book. They're like, that's not the way that you write a cookbook. I was like, I don't care. I want to like bend all the rules, right? But I think um, the way that I set up my cookbook was really for the reader to get to know me um, and get to understand a culture that is often misunderstood, right? And so the spirit, I'm like the Arab hospitality missionary. I'm like, you can do it too. Anyone can, you know, be like host a dinner party and like make a beautiful meze spread, like, but get to know what is the importance of these foods on your plate and the act of cooking those foods, of serving those foods, maybe learning a tidbit about those food and sharing that with your friend inherently um, builds community, right? Like this is a dinner party book. I don't think there's a lot of servings that are like less than four to (laughs) eight people, I think. (laughs) So it's definitely like encouraging you to invite 
folks over to have that kind of hospitality. So I think in the context of that cookbook, that was for sure what I was going sure. for. Um, and lots of sweets. <laughs> I have two sweet sections. I'm sorry. <laughs> Arab hospitality is sweet torture. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I mean, people always call me an organizer turned chef. And I'm like, once an organizer, always an yeah. organizer. You can't kind of rub it off. Um, I just happen to use food as my tool. Tool Like the, the restaurant, Reams was never meant to be just a restaurant. It was always supposed to be a community space for me. And the minute it doesn't feel like a community space, I shouldn't be doing it, right? Now that's hard in an industry that is very uh, grueling and commanding. So we really, really try to put the community aspect of our business front and center because that's what saved our business over the years right so like really involving our community and the building of it involving the people who are employed there like i think restaurants really do play this amazing third space role (laughs) if we treat them with intentionality but then also if we have help right from our community partners so a lot of times my community building is helping keep my restaurant afloat but it's like this interesting symbiotic relationship that has allowed my restaurant to thrive you title the the epilogue to arab hospitality is not for sale there's many lessons in there we won't get into all of them too but you offer a lot of lessons about staying true to that mission um even when you you walk down the path that that strays about how to correct that and get back on that that right path as a business owner and a restaurateur and an organizer. So I, I think that's really remarkable. And, you know, I certainly don't want to sugarcoat this too, right? California has a lot of amazing things. We have a beautiful produce. We have incredible restaurants, incredible chefs. But so much of this, these stories, these recipes are rooted in, in hardship and in challenging times. You each, you know, touch on different personal challenges, broader um, societal challenges, forced migration, enslavement, stolen lands, depression, uh, intense anti-Arab sentiment, and jingoism. It can feel somewhat cliche, right, to use the, fir- the, fu- the phrase, food is political, right? But it really is, and some of you use it in your books. And I- I'm curious if you can talk about how when you're approaching these books, you, you work to weave in those important narratives while also making these books that um, are powerful tools for advancing that conversation or those conversations. That's not one conversation. Yeah, Sarah, you, you were, we wove this a lot into your book, right? Yeah, so I, I definitely was born into activism. I grew up in Hoopa and the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation, and you know, it, we're we're born immediately into you know activism, struggles, challenges, and fights. And uh, but I also recognize that there is a, a large divide between uh, Native people and everybody else, and and just how we interact and talk to each other can feel really awkward, and and really it's difficult to get up to speed. I think on on decades and decades of of deliberately tamping down this information and this real history. So it. I felt like it was important to kind of bring everybody up to speed on on what we're doing and what we're working on and and where we're at and really what our historical struggles are and and what we're fighting for. And uh, and also to kind of connect just the food that we're eating into 
into its full holistic circle. There's, you know, the food that we're eating and that we're, we're sitting down and eating it, but that's really only one part of it. There's so much more about our foodways. There's, I mean, it's everything. It's storytelling and art and, and, and everything, language. It's, food is, is, is all of that. So I think that for the most part, we're all pretty separated from our food sources and, and really um, f- feeling out of rhythm with those cycles. And in order to do that, though, it's really, it, it is difficult because you're trying to bring in all of this history and all of this, you know, and it's not just my tribe, but it's, you know, we're not a monolith. We are all struggling and we're all having our own fights in our own communities all the time. And uh, so I'm really speaking mostly from my own perspective as a cutter woman when I talk about these struggles, but they're very, uh, you can definitely spread them across different tribes throughout California, especially, and, and we're all fighting a lot of the same fights. So I just wanted people to kind of get up to speed, the, you know, people who are ready to engage with this and ready to hear it and, and find out how to kind of get on their horse and get in there with us, but without doing it in a really dry way, which is also difficult when you're talking about history and, and water and land and all of that. So it's definitely still has my voice in there, retelling it to you, so it can be a little spicy, but yeah. it's... Yeah. A little spice is nice. Uh, well, I, I appreciate, too, that you, you mentioned the connection to producers, to people who are growing and producing the foods. Tanya, you mentioned, too, that you have a series of you know, mini profiles um, of black folks across the state who are growing produce, who are working at educational facilities or connected to culinary um, practices and, and farming practices. Um, can you talk about that decision to include those and, and how you sort of wove those into California Soul? Yeah, sure. Um, well, again, just to like show the contribution of African Americans to the foodways out here. I don't feel like it's talked about enough and, you know, a lot of people know about little soul food joints, but they don't know what else is going on. Like Mac um, from Vision Cellars, who is an award-winning Pinot Noir maker, you know, who's been here for a while, who's from East Texas, or you know, a beer producer. Like you said, the education, uh, the people who are involved in food education and um, community farming. We just thought with my agent that that would be a good thing to include and then also the historical sidebars so how Reem snuck in the memoir I kind (laughs) of snuck in the history Um, so we talk about the different cities and where people migrated from and what were important moments um, culinarily in those um, in those different cities and so you know some people aren't going to pick up the warmth of other suns, but here's a little tidbit and then that might lead them to read that like oh I want to know more about you know these people. So, um, yeah, it was just a different way to organize the book and to make it more substantial, yeah. more than cooking. Because I, like, I honestly, you know, didn't go to cooking school to become a chef. I went to become a restaurant tour, and my motivation was I'm very passionate about hospitality, more so than cooking, providing an experience. Um, it's what I grew up with. But I also wanted, I saw that the restaurant could be a vehicle for change and for integration, which I always valued. I never understood. I grew up, you know, my parents had pretty integrated social uh, world, even though I grew up in white suburbia. We went to a black church. They were from predominantly black communities, but 
you know, I thought, why, why is this not happening? And Brown Sugar Kitchen, um, the 1,500-square-foot location, I really, I didn't want a restaurant that small because I thought one group was going to take it over. But then, you know, I realized as it was going, it's like, no, it's not going to happen because it's my intention that it's very integrated. And it was always like that, like always. And that was probably the thing that I was most proud of, other, like, you know, the recognitions, the awards, the Michelin bib, whatever. It's like, no, I just like this environment that I was yeah. able to create. You know, and people who got to know each other because of the space that I created for them to feel comfortable yeah. in. Reem, when we talk about this relationship to the land, relationship to agriculture, I couldn't help but think about the opening of the book in Zatar, right? And um, you write that Zatar is resilient, drought resistant, takes root even on the most arid hilltops between rocks, not unlike our people, and that you dream of starting a Zatar farm here. So I wanted to ask if that's, that's a reality that we can hope for. Uh, we have yeah. some land near Bodega Bay. It's, I have a lot of projects uh -huh. going on. So. <laughs> but yes, it's still on the docket. I mean, I think, I mean, I just feel like diasporic food ways and they just tell this story of resilience of people that we can create home away from home no matter where we find ourselves and there's just something really beautiful about that um and yeah my dream is to i mean some of us are not going to get to go back to our homelands and it's okay you know like homelands are a memory but we're creating home here um and yeah a zatar farm would definitely bring my cuisine all yeah. together in terms of celebrating California. Yeah. What, a, what yeah. a great thing to look forward to. Um, we are, we'll, we'll let this room manifest yes. it today with the good vibes. <laughs> We've been talking about what's next for California cuisine. We often have a reputation here in California as a state that's leading social movements, leading change movements at the forefront of things. Um, you, you mentioned some things in your books here. Um, Tanya, you mentioned, um, looking at contribution, or, sorry, looking at ways to reduce the climate change and global warming impacts. Um, you also talk about cooking more plant-based, seasonal dishes, sustainable animal proteins. Sarah, you, you talk about some of the similar things in terms of climate change, um, clean air. Reem, you call for a liberatory food system. Um, so I'm curious if you can sort of enlighten us amongst the three of you on where you think we're headed in terms of the next movement to come from California cuisine that's going to impact how we think about food and food systems, whether that's from a food perspective, culinary perspective, labor perspective. What's next? What are you working towards or what are you hoping for? Yeah, I, some days I'm more hopeful than yeah. others. You know, we've lost a lot. I think we still haven't really gotten to grieve what we've lost during the pandemic. I mean, every day I'm waking up to news of another restaurant closing down. Yeah, Restaurants that I wouldn't have, like, expected to close down, you know? And being a restaurateur myself, I get it. <laughs> I'm like, you got to do what you got to do, right? Um However, there is like a renaissance of restaurants that are really like re like going back to the roots. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, there, there is this like I think it was happening before the pandemic. I think the pandemic helped kind of buy us some time to figure it out. Um, that they're like, we're, if we're gonna bow out, we're gonna bow out with our values. 
if that sure. makes sense. And I think that that's, I mean, Reams was always kind of on the precipice. We were doing the service. We like got rid of tipping yeah. uh, before anyone else did. But then like after the pandemic, there was a lot of restaurants that were doing that. I think people are really valuing, um, you know, that like we, this is not sustainable. We can't run a business like this. And if we don't get help from our city, our state, um, private philanthropy, um, we're not going to survive, right? Because people are not going to live off of, you know, $15 an hour in the most expensive city in the United right. States. So um, I think that's good. I think it's making us demand more. And if we have to bow out, um, you know, which feels <laughs> sad, or we have to find partners that will allow us to experiment and find another way that's more sustainable. And that's certainly what we're trying to do at Reams. Have I figured out the answer? No. But I know that um, the people who've been most hurt by the food systems need to have ownership in what's to yeah. come. And we, they're not going to stay if they don't have a stake in it. So that's what we're working on um, at, at the restaurant and kind of in coalition with other folks who are thinking yeah. the same thing. That's great. Any other thoughts on what, what's next? What other movements or issues are percolating? Something more uplifting than what I just said. Hopefully. No, there's, you're, you're right on point. Um, yeah, I don't have restaurants anymore, but I'm very involved still in the, in the industry. Um, if any of you are familiar with the James Beard Foundation, I'm chair of the awards and on the trustees, and we do, you know, a lot of work that it's not just giving away awards. We have um, these chef boot camps for policy and change, where uh, chefs are trained by um, lobbyists to know how to work in their own communities to make some changes and, you know, giving some, giving some tools in that way. And um, we've added some, the Black and Indigenous Fund, uh, which is, uh, provides some grants to um, those communities who are trying to open up places and women entrepreneur leadership class. So women in business have more access to financial literacy and, and access to funds. Um, so, and a lot of work around, um, sustainability and regenerative agriculture. So the, there's, you know, a lot of work being done in these little pockets. Um, and so it does make me a little hopeful for the future. And then also with COVID, I feel like now, um, the, you know, the average person understands a little bit more about the fragility of our industry and how we've got to change that. In my opinion, most of it is around real estate. I mean, that is, that is the biggest issue. But then there's also, like, our, our industry has always been, like, where the castaways go. And it's not, like, really professionalized, you know. And so we're competing now in entry-level positions. We can't compete with Uber or Google or whatever. And so we're losing talent. So I feel like that's something we really got to yeah. work on yeah. for the future. And, I'm, and I, I know some – I have some colleagues around the country who – are working on programs where they're training um, formerly incarcerated, one guy in Virginia training currently incarcerated um, folks, um, you know, people who were unhoused and just trying to build on the workforce. Um, but, yeah, there's just yeah. a lot to do. A lot to do. That lot. feels right. But it, it's, it's, it's great to hear the work that's being done. Um, you know, 
with three three of you, it's hard to get into a lot of the details because the time goes fast. I would love to explore in great detail all three of your books. I mean, Tanya, the fried artichoke po'boy recipe, I was drooling over. Reem, I learned um, with your al pastor style red spice chicken, a new thing. I did not know that al pastor has its roots in Lebanese cuisine and, and then came to Mexico and was improved upon in that way. Um, I have been really into stinging nettles, Sarah, and I saw your sting because I did not know you could cook them until not that long ago or eat them. Um, I was always told to avoid them as a kid and they, when they were growing in my grandma's yard. So stinging nettle tortillas uh, that you have in your book look incredible. I would love to like dive in deeper to all of these, but we're running short on time. So I want to bring us to one final question for each of you before we end with our um, culinary-themed uh, game that we always play. So obviously we're a show on cookbooks. Uh, so I always like to ask all of our guests something about your relationship with cookbooks. So I'm going to give you a choice, a two-part question, but you only have to answer one of the two parts. You get to choose. I'm curious if you can either tell us about a, a book or a cookbook author that has been influential to you over the course of your career, someone you turned to, um, turned to their books, someone who really um, guided you as you were coming into this career of yours. Or alternatively, you could also share with us a current cookbook that you're excited about, a current work or a current author or somebody you've just really been um, eager uh, to see their book out in the world. So um, two-part question. Yeah, so the first yeah. part, yeah. I think that, the, well, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is because I don't see cookbooks like this very often. And uh, I mean, we've got the sous chef cookbook. There are a few um there, there are a few cookbooks out now by native chefs, and I think that I felt like I had to kind of write my own because it, I come from more of a community-based perspective in, in, in feeding real you know, families and people every day and also connecting them to this greater holistic picture. Sure, sure. So uh, my, for me, cookbook-wise, I think that my family and our recipes and the way we cook growing up felt like something I had, wasn't able to really read in, in other places. So that's why I had to feel like I had to kind of write it myself. So and what was the yeah. other part? And if there's another book that you are really excited about, but you only have to answer half of the question. So if you want to answer the full question, be our guest. No, I'm, uh, I'm excited about both of your books. I have both of your books. And, they, and I think that is one of the things that I am most excited about is how people, we, we're centering the right voices. And these are the voices that we should be centering. Women that are doing this work and have been doing this work and bringing a perspective and their talent and, and all, of the, all of this beautiful work that they do and 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 then the community that's showing up to make sure that they are centering these voices as they as you go forward into your own homes and cooking and 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 buying cookbooks you're looking you're going to look through a different lens as you are buying cookbooks things are going to start to look different to you on a shelf you're going to you're it's going to feel a little hollow or a little i think a little emptier but then when you read one of their cookbooks you'll see how much more context is being filled in and it feels more nourishing not just from what you're eating but it will feel more nourishing just to your spirit in general some intra panel. Yeah. 
Thank you, Sarah. That's so nice. Tanya, yeah, how about um, you? Yeah, so I think, you know, I had mentioned earlier, in, you know, before I committed to a career, I was looking at vegetarian, epicurean, moosewood, and um, then when I was like, I think I want to make this career, I discovered Edna Lewis, A Taste of Country Kitchen. That was exciting to me because she was an African-American um, you know, chef and food writer. And then there were so many female voices in cookbooks, whereas the restaurants at that time were very male-dominated. So cookbooks were exciting for me, even though I didn't think you know, I would write one, my first one when I did, but I had a great opportunity. Um, so I would say Taste of Country Cooking definitely influenced me. A lot of baking books early in my career because I would be a chef of a small restaurant and have to do the desserts also. Uh, Emily Lucchetti, who's a local, um, who wrote Star's Desserts, like I, the book isn't even bound anymore. It's like I made everything in there and the pages fell out. They're, they were great. Um, and... Now, oh my God, I just, I just posted a video because I felt so bad. You saw that? Because everybody like sends me books because, you know, now I have a lot of colleagues who have written books and then my publisher sends books and I don't get to post them because I'm so busy. I just did a post of a bunch of people and they're all so different. I just got Pierre Chem's, the, uh, the West African cookbook and then like Ghetto Gastro and I just got Karen. Akanowitz, who's in Boston, who cooks mostly Italian food. Her book is called Crave. I have Reem's book. I mean, it's just so much of a variety, because it used to be very French, and then I'd have a southern section and, um, you know, a few other. But, like, it's just there's so much of a variety now. I love it. So, I don't know. Yeah, It's hard to say. Reem, how about you? Yeah, well, Deb you already talked about Deborah Madison's yes. book. That was really just, I mean, I, when I lived, when I moved to California, First of all, I moved to California just to get as far away from Boston as I could. <laughs> but I ended up in like my, I mean, my, um, my aunt and uncle at the time were just like so immersed in California cuisine and like their shelves are just filled with cookbooks. So I just like, and like the most random small cookbook, even like, like, you know, French pastries from some like some village sure. in Lebanon, you know, like that specific. Wow. Um, but my first gift uh, when I moved to California was the Cheese Board Collective cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then like 10, 15, 12 years later, I became a baker at Arizmendi Bakery Cooperatives. Right. In fact, for my first interview, I baked out of like this pretty rundown book because I had like baked through it all. Um, and I was like, you guys, I, I'm just one year into culinary school, but I'm like good for it. And like I brought in a baguette and muffin the blueberry corn corn blueberry muffins into my interview so i don't know if that won me the job it certainly <laughs> helped i'm sure yeah you got the job so well thank you I, I love hearing cookbook um influences so we always end with little games so we're gonna get um fun now not that we haven't been having fun um but we're we're gonna theme today's game my california dinner party since the topic of today's conversation is california cuisine so um i have four decks of cards here you're gonna draw each of you will get to draw from each of these four decks that's what you have to work with so you'll have four ingredients that you need to incorporate into a dinner party in some way we don't actually have to eat this so you can be as out there as you want <laughs> 
we're just conceptualizing it, but we want to get a sense of how you think about approaching that. You can also feel free to assume you have a larder, a pantry, you know, you can throw in some staple things. So um, I'll pass them down. The first um, category we have here are proteins. So you can pick a protein. We also have flavors, which are herbs and spices. We're gonna take a vegetable. And lastly is our secret ingredient deck, which is a hodgepodge of different um, standard and not so standard culinary ingredients. So take a minute to see what you're working with. Um, this is a dinner party, so you can do a one-pot dinner. Tanya's ready or not ready? Okay, she's ready. Um, you can do, this can be one dish. You can work all of this into one thing. You can course it out if you'd like. Um, but we're coming over for dinner. You're hosting a dinner party here in California. What are you going to make? Tanya, you looked ready. Do you want to go first? <laughs> Did you draw well? You got, a, you got a good hand. Okay, tell us what you're working with. Ground beef, oregano, dopio, <laughs> concentrato, tomato paste, and spinach. Oh, wow, okay. So <laughs> I'm obviously making lasagna, uh -huh. which is really one of my favorite dishes. I mean, I... Yeah, so. Okay, it's a lasagna. It's how do, how awesome. do we take it up a notch? Well, we're going to put some um, Calabrian mm. chilies in it, mm. for sure. Um homemade pasta okay. and um you know fresh parmigiano reggiano and you know i'll make a bechamel and i'll probably blanch the spinach and puree it into the bechamel so it's like the, you know it'll be nice just delicious bechamel. Yeah. yeah okay reem sarah how are you feeling what reem you want to go next what are you working with? yeah get this over with <laughs> no, uh, no actually i got a so Beans was okay. my protein, um, nutmeg, corn, and molasses. And molasses, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with pomegranate uh, molasses because yeah. I'm Arab <laughs> and we like to put pomegranate molasses in sure. everything. Um, I think I want to make a, um, yeah, let's go with a bean, bean stew. stew. Yeah, yeah, like a little chili, mm -hmm. vegetarian chili, but we're going to make it Arab style. We're going to start with, I know the protein is beans, but we like to put... Okay, we'll, we'll make an exception. We'll make an exception. A, a beef yeah. lamb mix. We're going to, with onions, and then, like, like we'll, we'll go a little heavier on the nutmeg, but we'll do a seven spice okay. mix to kind of bring it all together. A little bit of warming spices, allspice, sure. cinnamon. Uh, yeah, build a stew, and then... Uh, at the end, get that pomegranate molasses and some citrus. Yeah, at the oh, end. that sounds nice. You also drew well. You also drew well. You're, you got you got nice cards, both of you. Yeah. Not too challenging. Too Sarah, how yeah. did you do? <laughs> so I had my protein is pork, and I have uh, an onion. Paprika and a passion fruit. Okay. So it's not okay. it's not too too wild. I would do al pastor probably, <laughs> but do a uh, pork rub overnight and then uh, stack it with the onion on a spit and baste it with passion fruit and just turn it into yeah. an al pastor taco. Yeah, probably. Nice passion fruit al pastor. Yeah, those are great. Those are great. 
I don't know, though. I'm looking at my watch. I think we have time for one more round, because these were really, really easy, you all. <laughs> like, I know what some of these cards are. We have gummy bears in here, we have liquid nitrogen in here, and you're drawing tomato paste. So I feel like we should do one more round before we close out. I really, like, went deep in those decks, too. I mean, that was... Yeah, well, we know Reem is a poker player, so I'm not surprised that she drew well, but Tanya, I don't... I did. All right, let's, let's draw a new set of ingredients. We don't want to put you to too much of a challenge, but how's this round looking? Reem says this is bad. All right, take a minute to think it over. Theme is still the same. California dinner party. Folks are coming over. <laughs> Anybody feeling ready? <laughs> Tanya, you're ready. Okay. So I, it's, um, it's Thanksgiving. I have ham, cilantro, pumpkin, and beets. So obviously we're going to have, um, going to, you know, roast mm-hmm. the ham. I'll make like a cilantro, um, what's the, oh crap, what is the thing that I'm looking for? Um, yeah, kind of like a pesto, like a chimichurri, uh-huh. right, uh-huh. to serve on the side, and then um, cut the pumpkin and beets in chunks and just do like a, a roasted vegetable medley. Might, might actually put the cilantro, well, that's kind of weird, I think. I don't know. This is a, not a great I combo. mean, it's not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. So ham, we have like a cilantro yeah. chimichurri with the ham, roasted pumpkin. Right. Where do the beets, beets come in? Maybe mix them together. Or I could just roast the beets and then make a pumpkin pie. There you go. You did say it was Thanksgiving. So. You could do that. Right. No, you can course it out if you want. Yeah. Okay. So, Tanya, that's a good Thanksgiving menu. I like it. I like it. Cilantro is kind of a, I don't know, red herring there. <laughs> Reem, what are we working with I mean, this time? I, I got, I got broccoli. Tempeh. Mm, tempeh. <laughs> uh, meals, uh, cloves, and liquid nitrogen. There we go. Okay. Have you worked with liquid nitrogen? <laughs> this is like the least. I'm like, I, do I want to make a meal that I feel the least excited about? But I can imagine a saute, a little, you know, stir fry of okay. some sort. Maybe we can coat this tempeh with a spice mix. I'm like, how clovey does it have to be? I think can you can go. You can like a yeah, hint that's of up to clove? you. Yeah. Maybe I make a mulled wine. Sure. Yeah. Let's start with a mulled wine. To go with it? Upon arrival. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Go, go. Um, what am I smashing with liquid nitrogen <laughs> though? I'm like, I can't really. Can I do broccoli pieces? Because I don't really like broccoli. I'm like, Ooh. Yeah. An ice cream with the tempeh. No, I no. wouldn't. This is no, you. I think I'm going to saute this the tempeh and broccoli together uh, with like sesh, like a Szechuan concoction. Okay. That, a sprinkle of Szechuan. Okay. Powder. Not too much. Not, not too numb. So we... With some really, really nice noodles. Hand-pulled, hand-pulled noodles. noodles. That I'll get from my local um, Chinese restaurant. Because yeah. I'm not going to hand-pull them <laughs> sure. myself. Yeah, where that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, we're, the Szechuan. Oh. Yeah, we're gonna take us like a little Szechuan and uh, dehydrate it. Well, I see. Freeze it and pulverize it. 
So we arrive to Reams. We get a glass of mulled wine, clovey glass of mulled wine, a nice hand-pulled noodle, tempeh, stir-fry with liquid nitrogenized Szechuan peppercorns. I love it. Okay, nice. (laughs) All right, and Sarah, round two, what are we working with? Uh, I have my protein is lamb and my vegetable is cucumber. Uh, I've got sriracha and chives. So I guess you pickle a cucumber and that sounds like a bon me to me. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Nice. A lamb bon me. Okay. Love it. Well, that was great. Thank you. Nobody got the gummy bear card. So let's give it up. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks, and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Mm-hmm.